You're coming at a, at a great time because we, be, we have kind of been into this journey, the book of Ephesians. We're 27 weeks in. We love to walk and teach through Scripture. We want you to have a love affair with the Word of God. Like that is our entire heartbeat as we think about Sunday mornings is, is introducing you to the Word of God in a way that says, I want to know God's Word deeper and more so that you want to go home and open it up and wrestle with it. And our hope is that your encounter with God's Word isn't just what happens here on Sunday morning. But instead, as we teach through these things, it ignites a passion that you have in your life to daily get into it. We have a lot of opportunities to do that. Brandon is leading us through a Bible reading plan. Anybody can jump in at any time. There's a group on Realm that kind of discusses those things. That Bible reading plan is out there on the little kiosk. You can pick it up and, and jump in it with us. But we're in Ephesians, and today we're hitting another milestone in our journey, right? 27 weeks in, and today we're starting into chapter 5. And chapter 5 is both a continuation of where we've been and a little bit of a push forward. Paul's going to begin to up the ante. As if he hasn't already, he's going to be able to begin to push the, uh, the kind of lifestyle things into a lot of real-world realms. We're going to begin to talk about things like marriage. We're going to get into some deeper avenues of how to begin to live this out. Now, if you've been with us for any point in time, you'll remember that the first three chapters of Ephesians are really built around theology. It's built around this idea of who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, and what that means for us as followers of Christ. It's the forging together of the Jewish and the Gentile believers into one new family of God and who they are under this banner of Christ. But then chapter 4 begins, right, and we have this new introduction, and, and Paul begins to push from the, the theo theological side to the practical side, from doctrine to duty. How do we begin to live out this theology that has been built in us through Christ? And he begins with this idea of unity, because the Gentile believers and the, and the, the Jewish believers, they just didn't get along well. History for centuries upon centuries upon centuries had pitted them against each other. And now under Christ, they are thrust into one new family. And so Paul's addressing the need for unity. And he doesn't just address it for unity's sake, like get along so that nobody sees you arguing. He, he addresses it because he says essentially that when we live in community, in this deep unity, we begin to see the fullness of Christ. And he says that fullness and the full measure of Christ becomes a representation of the world. So the first part of chapter 4 is like the church becomes the instrument in which God is going to use to demonstrate the glory of the gospel. And he begins to talk about then how we live this out. And it got real, real practical. And we begin to look at things like anger and all these kind of pieces and, and that we've been over the past few weeks. Um, and this morning, he's going to push us one step a little bit further. He's going to actually call us to something that is wholly impossible yet beautifully possible at the same time. He's going to call us to become imitators of God, which on its face value is sheerly impossible, that any of us could even think about the magnitude of what it would be to imitate God. But yet knowing that the Holy Spirit dwells and lives in us, it becomes an act that is doable if we understand it correctly. And that's what we're going to be this morning. And we're going to make it through two whole verses, all right? It's just the way this thing goes. So if you've got your Bible, roll over to Ephesians 5, all right? And we're going to look at Ephesians 1 and 2. We're both continuing this thread of daily living and, and how we begin to live out this theology while pushing forward to something just a little bit bigger. So as we do that and we turn there, I want to go ahead and pray for us and just ask the Lord to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather together as the community of God. We recognize that we have partners and friends around the world that don't get this luxury. 
We have believing friends in other places that don't have the luxury of gathering together with community. Maybe they live in a country that is hostile to it, or maybe they're in a, in a place where there just aren't a lot of believers. And so, Lord, yet we come and go from church based on convenience so often. But we recognize this morning as we gather, we're in a very unique place. We're reading a letter that was written to the community as a community that's reading it together. Like, this is what Paul intended. When he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he had no idea, I don't think, that 2,000 years plus later, the community would still be reading it, grappling for unity and how to live this out. The word of God lasts forever. It withstands all things. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that in the same breath and way that you taught the Ephesians on those days where they gathered and read this letter from the Apostle Paul, that you would teach our hearts. Unite us to them. Unite us to what you're doing in this letter and teach us what it is that you're saying through Paul's hand. Take a moment in your own heart this morning before we even get into it and just ask the Lord to teach you. Something simple. Lord, just teach my heart. Just whisper those things to the Lord. Open your heart to him and ask him to teach you this morning. And then as you do that, pray for the people around you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. All those things I say each week, they're true. Care deeply enough for the people around you to pray for. Maybe a husband, maybe a wife, maybe someone you've never seen before. Maybe you're here for the first time and it all seems a little strange. Just try it. Just pray for someone around you. Pray that God would move in them. Care about their spiritual growth and development. Who knows what they're walking through? Lord, we recognize that this is your word. You are the revealer of truth. We will not discover you. You will reveal yourself to us. We believe that. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take it lightly. So teach our hearts this morning. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So chapter 4, 16 on, has really been a collection of instructions on how to live, right? We'll go over them here again in a little bit, but talking about not being angry and the different types of anger and how to not let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths and what that means and what gossip, like very practical things in the life of a believer. Well, Paul's going to basically sum all that up and push us forward as we begin to think a little bit bigger about what it means to live these things out. And this is what he says in 5, 1 and 2. He says, Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children and live lives of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the beginning of chapter 5 is actually an attachment and a continuation of 432. You know, remember, the numbers in your Bible came around much later. Paul didn't write this stuff with numbers in it. In fact, he didn't really have it punctuated very well at all from what we know. These were added later to kind of understand the breaks of things. But really, 5 is attached mainly to the end of chapter 4. Because it bridges the gap between all the things that he's saying, and he's going to sum it up. And he sums it up in this way. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Which if you let your mind think about the daunting nature or the grandeur of what he's saying, it seems 
really powerful, right? Like just think about that statement at its face value for the believer. Be an imitator of God. I mean, is there anything farther from what you are? I mean, there's not for me. I mean, I am an imitator of a lot of human behavior. I'm an imitator of people that I like. I actually imitate things that, and people that I don't like unintentionally. Like, I'm an imitator of everything. But to think about the idea of imitating God in itself is really overwhelming. But there's even a bigger problem with our understanding of this verse, is that we have a problem with understanding imitation as it's written here. Because at face value, right, when you just look at it, it is impossible. How do you actually imitate the holy, the almighty, the wondrous, the the one who created the heavens and the, the earth that knows no mistakes, that knows everything, that has never sinned, that has never encountered any of those sinful nature things that make up who you are? How do you imitate that God at all? Right? Because our problem is we have a broken way of thinking about imitation because we don't understand this full part of this verse. We just hang on that first section. Be imitators of God. And what that means at face value is, if God does this, then I should do that. Right? God is nice, so I need to be nice. So if we imitate someone, that's what we do, right? God's nice, I'm nice. This person does this, and I want to do that. They're successful, so I want to imitate what they do. They get up at four, they work out, they read, they do yoga. I need to get up at four, I need to read, I need to do yoga. I'm a millionaire. Like, this is how this works, right? Imitation is an action-oriented behavior in which we try to do the things that the person we are imitating does. So if that's the call, it's impossible. It's actually a dumb thing for Paul to say because of the impossible nature that it has. Imitate the unimitatable, right? But that's not really what's happening here. There's a second statement that changes everything. And that statement is attached to it. It says, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say be imitators of God children. Like, He's talking to the congregation. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Here's what this means. It means that we are not called to imitate God based on behavior. We are called to imitate God because we are full recipients of what God has given. You are dearly loved. Some versions will say beloved means that you are the expression of God's great extravagant love poured out in you through Christ. You are not merely reflecting a behavior. You are an overflow of what God has already lavished upon you. A lot of times we think our job as believers is to reflect God. We want to reflect God to the watching world. It's actually a bad image. Instead, what God does, he fills us and creates us and makes us new, and we are an overflow of who he is and what he's done and who he says we are. Therefore, imitation is not a mere reflection of behavior, and imitation is an expression of who God says I am. I am a dearly loved child, meaning I am a full recipient of God's love, and therefore my imitation is only an overflow. Now, I know it doesn't sound like much, but it's going to make a ton of sense in a minute. Because 
at its face value, you cannot imitate God's behavior. However, if God has given you this full expression of who he is that dwells and lives in you, your imitation is actually merely to do what God has already done in you. It becomes an overflow. I'll explain it to you in a moment. So keep that in the back of your mind, right? So as dearly loved children, be imitators of God. So I started thinking about that really kind of in depth. What, in this context of chapters 4 and 5, what is Paul talking about when he says imitate God? Well, I think if we look at them in their context, there's really three areas. We're not going to get into the first two very deeply. We'll get into the, the last one a little bit. But the three areas are this, right? We're called to be imitators of God in the way that we act and behave. We're called to be imitators in God in the way that we forgive. And we're called to be imitators in God in the way that we live out love. Now, it's all laid out there. If you've been with us for any point in time and you've looked at chapter 4, you'll see it. The first one is this idea that we are called to imitate God in the, act, in the way that we act and behave. That's the entire second portion of chapter 4, right? That is verses 16 through 32. That is the section of this where Paul talks about not letting unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what's helpful are building others up according to their needs, right? It's a part that Brandon got into last week, getting rid of bitterness and anger and rage and brawling and slander and every form of malice. There's a whole expression here in chapter 4 about what we're called to do and live as a response to who we are. We are no longer those things. We have been saved and redeemed by the love of Jesus. He has made us fully new, and we are called to live wholly different. So the imitation of God is not just because God says to do something, but because of who he has made us to be. So we are called as believers to imitate God in our acts and behavior, not be nice because God is nice, but instead to be these things because they are now who I am. The imitation is based on the overflow of God lavishing me in his love. So what that means is that all the unwholesome talk and the gossip and all those things that we've talked about and the getting rid of anger and slander and bitterness and all those things are not because God just says to get rid of the bad things. It's because that's no longer who we are. See, the imitation is an expression of an overflow. It's not that God says, just work on not being mean to people. God says, in Christ you have been set free and you are no longer that. You are now literally new in me. New spirit, new way of life, new way of thinking. So this, this imitation of behavior is not simply trying my best to be good. It's not trying my best to be nice, to make sure I don't talk or cuss or any of those kind of things, because good Christians don't do that. That's the impossible side. What becomes wholly possible in the Holy Spirit is that we imitate God in action and behavior because of who we now are. I'm not that person anymore. That doesn't mark me. I've been saved and redeemed, and God has loved me into a new way of living, and I get, I get to encourage people in my speech. I get to not have to deal with unholy anger. I get to not gossip. I get to encourage. I get to build up because this is who God has filled me up to be, right? So that first portion, which we're not really going to get into, is all that part of chapter 4. Be imitators of God in the way that you act and behave. Second part of that comes at the very end of chapter 4. And the second thing we see is to become an imitator of God in the way that you forgive. And Brandon probably touched on it a little bit last week, but this is what verse 432 says. He says this, he says, Be kind 
and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. So that's a verse right before the imitators of God one, right? Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Now, that's not the only time Paul says this. He actually tells the, uh, the Colossians the same thing. He says, bear with one another in love. <clears throat> Take on each other's burdens. Forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. Very similar to what he says here to the believers in Ephesus. I don't think any of us have a problem with forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is fine with us as long as it fits into our formula. Right? We're great as long as you do it in the way that we need you to do it, which is usually when you've wronged me, you come back and you say, Trev, I am really sorry. I made a mistake. I see that now. I ask for your forgiveness and I want to change. And then we say, you are forgiven. We love to forgive that way because that forgiveness makes sense because it does something for me. However, there's a real problem in this verse. And that problem is the caveat that Paul attaches to both his call to the Colossians and his call to the Ephesians. And it's this, forgive as Christ forgave you. Not forgive as you want to be forgiven or forgiven the order of this formula or the way it goes about and make sure they clicked all the right steps, but to forgive as Christ forgave you. Now you see how we're talking about imitation. This is not something we forgive Carl for sinning because God forgives Carl. No, we forgive Carl because God forgave me. And that becomes an overflow of imitation. Now here's the real problem, right, in all of this. You did nothing, and I did nothing, to earn or merit God's forgiveness. You did no right formula. You did not say the right or correct things. You did not put together a perfect kind of plan and report and take it to God and go, I learned my lesson, I did X, Y, and Z, I achieved four, five, and six, therefore will you forgive me? And God says, let me look this over and I'll get back to you next week. Reads it over and says, pretty good, finish up chapter 6, come up with some new things you want to do, and then I'll consider it. You take it back to God, he says, great job, you're now forgiven. It's not what God does at all. He lavishes unconditional forgiveness upon you when you don't deserve it. In Romans, Paul tells us the exact same thing. While you were still fully sinful, God forgave and redeemed you. Meaning you did nothing formulaically to earn it or merit it. And that is the problem with these verses. It is not forgive because it's right. It's forgive because it's how Christ forgave you. And that is a huge problem. Because we don't want to forgive this way. Most of us are holding on to some grudge right now in our heart against some person, something, or some idea that we refuse to let go of, even though we know it's slowly causing resentment in us. We don't know how or we just don't want to. The reality is, is that your sinful, broken, dirty, selfish, egomaniac kind of self-pursuing, lustful self doesn't deserve anything that Christ has given you. And yet he lavishes it on you anyway. And then he tells you to forgive in that same way. So what does that really mean? Does that mean that, that I have to forgive that person that did this horrific, awful thing to me? That's exactly what that means. 
That's exactly what that means. Does that mean I have to let them into my closest fellowship and share my heart with them again? No. But what it does mean is that I'm not going to let resentment and bitterness and judgment be a part of the story of what forgiveness is given to. Because if I do that, that would essentially be saying, that's how Christ forgave me, and that's not what happened. And so I don't have to wait for the phone call from my sister to tell me she learned the error of her ways, and she just wants things to be back to the way they were. It means I actually can't wait for that phone call. See, the lack of forgiveness like Christ forgives leads to resentment, and resentment always leads to death. I talk about it all the time. Resentment leads nowhere else but death. So when Paul talks about being an imitator of God, he's talking about action and behavior because you're this new self. But he also ties this little thing at the end and he says to each other, forgive as Christ forgave you. In other words, be an imitator of God in the way that you forgive. Most of us need to wrestle with that. Like really wrestle with it. Because whether or not we say we forgive, that corner of our heart that holds that resentment against our our wife, or against our children, or against a mother, or against a friend, or a coworker, or a boss that we just anchor our fingers into, and it goes away for months at a time. But you know when it comes back up, and you're like, "No." What if that's how God looked at you? What if His forgiveness was only when you had the perfect formulaic response? I would be dead in a gutter somewhere. But the imitation, right, is not. Behavior, it's an overflow because you are a dearly loved child, a full recipient of God's forgiveness. And because you're a full recipient of God's forgiveness, you are called to be a full giver of God's forgiveness. It is an overflow, not a mimic of action. We don't forgive because God does. We forgive because God forgave me. My expression is that I'm no longer that person. Imitation, remember, is an overflow. If we read these verses correctly, as dearly or beloved children, we get to imitate God because we've seen it. We've experienced it. It's who we are. But this is where we're getting to this morning, right? This third piece. Be imitators of God in the way that we live out love. Listen to what else he says in chapter 5, right? Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, right? This tied all that together. And live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's that stinking caveat again. It's right there, right? And live a life of love. Here it is. Just as Christ loved us. Us. Not a mimic of action, but Jesus loved you first, and we become an overflow of that. The imitation is an overflow of Christ, how Christ has loved me, right? So, how does Christ love us? Like, what does that look like? Be imitators of God, right? As Christ loved us, gave himself for us as a fragrant offering. There's two pieces there, right? There's this idea of sacrifice that Christ gave himself up for us, and there's this idea of pleasing fragrance, which I'll get to in a moment, which is really about something that's pleasing to God. The first part of this love that we see is this idea of sacrifice. It's sacrificial, right? 
When I think about how Christ loved and how he loved me and how he loved the world, there's really two pieces there that I see. It's this, this sort of deep sacrifice, this without condition, and this part that was super costly. And he really loved without condition, right? I mean, think about the disciples. If we just take it at face value. These guys are a ragtag group of randoms. They've got no real resume for anything at all. They're tax collectors and fishermen, and they're, they're pretty sinful and super selfish, and they're, they're heady, and they're hearty, and they don't speak well, and they've got a weird accent, and they're from a part of the country that nobody really likes or appreciates. They're uneducated. They're a huge mess. They are actually a colossal liability to a traveling rabbi's ministry. But Jesus loved them, right? He actually called them. They didn't just show up and be like, hey, can we follow you? He actually drew them in. These are the people that he said he wanted to spend his time around. And he loved them without condition. I mean, through their disagreements and their fights and all their kind of crazy arguments about who gets to sit on his right or the left or all the things that they didn't get, all the ways they made mistakes, he loved them. And he loved them even up until their own abandoning of him. He spends three years with them. And then what happens at the end of his life where he surrounds himself with the people that you would think would care for him the most on the very night that he's betrayed? What happens? The entire group scatters. Everybody leaves. Peter would disown him three times. Judas betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus is left most literally alone. Yet all we see in the life of Christ is this without condition, without exception, loving these men. And it's not limited to the disciples, right? I mean, this is the picture of a love that Scripture paints for you. You don't have a good resume. Most of us don't come from the right lineage. We don't have a great religious understanding. We certainly don't have great moral boundaries and compasses. We've made a colossal amount of mistakes. In fact, we just keep compounding the same mistakes even after God shows us this way or that way. Yet time and time again, without exception and without condition, Christ continues to love. That's how he loves you. It means that he doesn't love you this morning based on your performance. You didn't wake up, get up really early, head down to the city rescue mission, feed a bunch of homeless folks, run by the, uh, the foster care facility and take care of some orphans, read six chapters in Genesis, right? Do a lot of meditation, write a chapter for your new book on how to follow Jesus perfectly, wake your wife up with flowers and breakfast, raise your children with the shades to open, the sun shining, and they jump into your arms all before 6 a.m. And you roll into church holding hands and God says, you did it, man. You nailed it. I love you. No, most of you were incredibly rude to either your wife or your child on the way here. Super irritated because your kid wouldn't wear the right shorts. Shorts for some reason. And your wife, who said something two days ago that still bothers you, right, that you don't want to let go of, somehow is still living in your house. It all bugs you. And yet you rolled in here with a half-hearted wanting to even be here because it's Memorial Day weekend and you should be doing something else. And guess what? God loves you nonetheless. That's the reality of this without condition, right? That's how he loves us. So when he says love as Christ has loved you, once again, that gets real problematic, doesn't it? But it's not just that. It also is this deep sacrifice. Sacrificial. 
Because these guys weren't easy to love. In fact, there was a stigma that came with even hanging out with the disciples. They were not good for your reputation. In fact, every corner Jesus turned, there was an issue because he hung out with all the wrong people. Whether they were the disciples or the prostitutes or the sinners or the crippled people or the blind or the tax collectors or the whatever. All the social and religious circles had issues with it. Everything was a liability. His life with them was about sacrifice. Just being around them was hard. And it was hard for the watching world because they didn't get it. But even more so, right, even more so, the sacrifice of Christ taking all of their sin and your sin and my sin to the cross becomes really powerfully sacrificial. I mean, Christ's entire existence, what? was just so he could take on the sin of the world. So if loving, right, is this idea of sacrifice, it contains this without condition and this deep cost. How do you love your spouse? Or your coworkers? Or your mom? Or that person next to you? Or how do you love your enemy? Do you love them without condition and with deep cost? No, we love most people with convenience. We just do. We love people that are easy to love. We have friends and we spend our time around those that are easy to spend time around. And we love the people that are easy to love. I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. I'm just saying because that's our nature. Unfortunately, that's not how Christ loves. He doesn't just love those that are easy to love. If he did, there would be nobody sitting here this morning. Be empty. I wouldn't be here. But Christ loves without condition and with sacrifice, which means that is how we are called to love, even the people in our lives that are hard to love. And there are a bunch of them. But guess what? In someone's life, you are the one that it's hard to love. Now, you don't want to admit that or believe that, and most of us think we're pretty great, but the reality is to somebody, you are really hard to love. And that person may actually be closer than you think. We just have inflated views of ourselves. But that caveat, right, to live out our love the way that Christ loves us changes everything. How did Jesus love his enemy? How did he love those that he surrounded himself with, the disciples? How did he love the religious elite? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would those be the words that you uttered on the cross? No, it would be, God, strike them all down. And let me come back and haunt them. And show them what they did wrong. That would be me. I'd be like, boo, gotcha. See, you should have never done that. Here I am. That's not what Jesus did. Just forgive them, right? Okay, so that being said, there's a second piece to this, right? There's a sacrificial piece. Then there's this other piece, right, that's pleasing. Listen to this. He says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up. That's the sacrificial piece. Gave himself up for us. As what? As a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you got to put on your Old Testament glasses for just a minute because this is an Old Testament concept about sacrifice. So he says, Christ gave, loved us and gave himself up sacrificially. And that sacrifice was actually pleasing to God. As difficult as that is to understand, that Jesus being God's father, literally his own son, sacrificed on this 
created Roman instrument of death and mockery and torture was actually pleasing to God. He calls it a fragrant offering. Now, if you put on your Old Testament sacrifice glasses for a moment, the Old Testament oftentimes talks about offerings that were done in the right heart and that were done in obedience were considered to have a fragrant or pleasing aroma to God. So when they would sacrifice correctly and with the right heart, they would burn whatever animal or offering it was, and the smoke that rose up from the temple or from the tabernacle was said to be a pleasing aroma to God, right? As crazy as that sounds, the idea of burning animal flesh or grain offerings or whatever doesn't sound all that appealing because at face value it's not, but it's the heart and the sacrifice and what the people were doing was pleasing to God. And what it says is the way that Christ loved and gave himself up was a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. What that means is that it would begin to imitate the love of God. We're called to do it sacrificially, and we're called to do it in the way that pleases God. Now, here's the thing. Not all sacrifices please God. All right? Now, we don't have to look very far to understand this. The Old Testament's full of this. Amos chapter 5 is probably the best and cleanest example of this. In Amos, he's talking to the Israelites who are basically doing all the religious things correct. But on their daily life, they are declaring essentially they have no need for God. They've got this thing under control. They don't need him. But they're going to make sure they go through all the religious steps, right, so that God won't punish them. And this is what Amos chapter 5 um, says. Amos chapter 5 says this, God speaks back and he says, I hate and I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice, fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise from your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. So what God says to the Israelites in Amos is essentially he says this, you're doing all the right religious activities. You've got great assemblies, you're making all the offerings, you're playing your harps, you're singing your songs, you're showing up at all the right places at all the right times, and I detest it. In fact, I hate it, and I reject it. Because the manner in which you are doing it and the heart behind it is wrong. That's frightening to me. You know why it's frightening? Because almost every single one of us, including myself, goes through all the motions when it comes to our religious engagement without heart. We drag ourselves to church, sing some songs we may or may not really like. We pass judgment on what the sermon was like. Did it entertain me? Did it not? I kind of liked it. How was church? I liked it. Okay. You know, this is what we do. We turn our religious assemblies into houses that we play in. It's dangerous. Because it's not the offering that God desires. It's the heart behind it. Here's how we know this. So you remember David, right? The man after God's own heart. Pretty flawed fella. Made some giant mistakes. Some adultery, some murder, a whole lot of lies. This is David, right? Well, Psalm 51, David is exposed. All of those things have come to light, and David is laid bare before God. 
And Psalm 51 is his response to the fact that all of his sin has just been exposed and he is a broken, broken person. This is what he says to God in Psalm 51, verse 17. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. Sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn from you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, for you are the God who saves me. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Listen to this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are this, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise those. So what David is essentially saying here is, God, I would do all the right religious activities if you would take them. I would make all the burnt offerings. I've got access to any animal that you want. I would make all the the acceptable things if I thought that would please you. But I know it's not the actual act that you desire. The sacrifice you need and want from me is my broken heart. And my contrite or my, my forgiving, my, my broken and repentant spirit. And so, God, I know you won't despise those things. You see the difference in David's heart and the heart that the Israelites had when it came to sacrifices that were pleasing to God? God does not want you to show up here. I don't care who tells you that. That's not God's desire for you. He doesn't want you to show up and force your kids to sing songs so that somehow they get a little bit of morality into them. God is not interested in our empty and hollow religious activities. It's the heartbeat behind it. He would rather a broken heart that understands our need for him than for us to put on the best display for the entire world to make sure that every chair is pushed in and the building is full and all the banners say the right things and the lyrics match in the background space and everybody's wearing their matching shirts and we're hollering out things that are empty. Detestable to God. Not that people do that, but it becomes a quick place for us to fill religious activity. The sacrifice that God requires is the one that Jesus made, right? He says it right there. It was sacrificial, and it was pleasing to God. As difficult as it was for God to watch his son go to the cross, be mocked and beaten and abused by the very creation that he made, it was pleasing because the heart behind all of it was redemptive. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this. We are called to love in that same manner. We are called to love in that same sacrificial manner that is pleasing to God. And here's the question, the great leveling question, right? Is how you love your spouse, your child, your coworker, your enemy, is it pleasing to God? Is it going through the motions? Is it hollow? Is it empty? Are they just words? If I love you is just a word not backed by the deep heart and action, it's not pleasing to God. You see what Paul is getting at when he says, be imitators. Be imitators of God. Not because God says, do an action, so go do an action. But because you are dearly loved children, recipients of all these things. 
They are the overflow of what you are now. So be imitators of God in the way that you act and behave. Be imitators of God in the way that you forgive. And be imitators of God in the way that you live out love. Because this is who you are. Dearly loved children, right? Overflowing with new life and behavior, with new ways of thinking about forgiveness and new ways of loving that are sacrificial and pleasing to the Lord. This morning, I challenge you to ask yourself a series of really hard questions. What am I modeling? Am I just simply trying to model a Christian life because God says do things? Or am I letting the overflow of who God says I am be what guides my path? The way that I love, the way that I forgive, the way that I act and behave, are they sacrificial? Are they pleasing to God? Or is this all just about me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here this morning in worship. Opening up two verses, two verses, and dealing with all these things. You are the Redeemer. You are holy. You are mighty. And you call us to this thing, not a moral standard for the sake of moral standards, but Lord, you call us to live out this imitation of overflow because we are your children. You have lavished your love upon us, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You have given us a new life, a new creation, a new way to act and live, a new way to forgive because of how you've forgiven us and a new way of love because of how you've loved us. Everything is new. Lord, help us live in a way that is an overflow of what you've done and that is deeply pleasing to you. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
One quick reminder, if you're not on Realm or haven't paid attention, the Harlins are hosting a going-away party for the Wises today at 4. Everybody's invited. All that information's on Realm. Um, but uh, Peter and Chantel are right there if you want to ask them a couple questions about where they live. But we'd love for you to come be a part of that, celebrate them on the way out. But as we walk out of this place, let's let these verses be more than just a, a reminder. Let them be a, a call, a push forward, that we are called to be imitators of God, not because we can, but it's because who we are. Take those truths and let them guide you. Go in peace.